0: after the passage of the Recovery Act of 1933 under the provisions of which the Congress of the United States provided for the guarantee of labor's fundamental right to organize and bargain collectively, and despite the further fact that the exploited workers in many of these industries spontaneously and on their own initiative revolted and formed their own unions, the craft unions of the American Federation of Labor made no effort to consolidate these gains or to establish an organization of their own. On the contrary, they opposed real plans for organization and left the new unions to their fate. This tragic failure upon the part of the craft unions was a logical outgrowth of their fundamental weaknesses and inabilities in the effort to secure unity of action in mass production industries which they were attempting to organize. Because of jurisdictional claims arising between the different craft organizations, they were unable to develop that unity of purpose which is one of the leading values of industrial unionism and which is indispensable to successful collective bargaining in our basic industries. These workers should have the opportunities to support their families under conditions of health, decency, and comfort, to own their own homes, to educate their children, and possess sufficient leisure to take part in wholesome social and political activities. It is for the purpose of enabling them to acquire and enjoy these rights that the eight international unions of the American Federation of Labor, including the United Mine Workers of America, have formed the Committee for Industrial Organization. It is our purpose to encourage the formation of industrial unions equal in economic strength and management in the steel, automobile, rubber, glass, Textile, radio, and all other basic industries.
1: Welcome to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy and Jacobin Magazine. I'm your host, Benjamin Fong. On the last episode, we covered the prehistory of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and on this one, we'll get to its founding and its key figures. That voice you heard at the beginning was once again that of John L. Lewis, announcing the formation of the Committee for Industrial Organization in November 1935. We'll be talking a great deal about Lewis later in this episode, but first, Professor Emeritus of History and Sociology at Binghamton University, Melvin Dubofsky, and Professor of History at UC Santa Barbara, Nelson Lichtenstein, with their own tellings of the founding of the CIO.
2: What was the CIO? It's not easy or simple. Essentially, it was an attempt or effort to bring unionization to areas of the economy in which, in the past, unions had a history of failure.
3: The Committee for Industrial Organization, that was a committee set up by the John L. Lewis, who was the uh, leader of the United Mine Workers, then a very, very large union with 600,000 members. Also, Sidney Hillman, who was head of the amalgamated Clothing Workers. Um, David Dubinsky, originally, who was uh, head of the, another garment worker union. They said, look, we must take advantage of the the situation which is now uh, occurring in the, in the 30s with the roosevelt administration the the american federation of labor should take advantage of this and begin new organizing campaigns in in industries which were not organized and which were very very important which were then the in industries which we might call the commanding heights of the economy and in those days That would be like automobiles and steel, electrical products, things of that sort.
2: John L. Lewis, the president of the United Mine Workers of America, realized or thought that this was the time to act. This was the time in which mass production workers could be unionized. Now, the the old story was that it was a split between the workers with skills in craft unions and the minority of unions that had less skilled workers. The real clash was not between skill and non-skill. The clash was over. Whether it would pay off to unionize the mass production workers, would it be worth
3: the effort? What happened was that over a two-year period, the committee began to organize. Uh, the mine workers were the treasury, really. They had a they had a treasury, and uh, they began to set up committees, like the steelworkers organizing committee, or the Patent House workers organizing committee, or the textile workers organizing committee which they began to fund. They began to hire organizers. Many of those organizers were radicals, communists, and socialists, and they began organizing campaigns.
2: What happens next is that the AFL considers the CIO a subversive organization. The AFL orders them to follow decisions adopted by the AFL convention. The committee, Lewis, Hillman, Davinsky, their allies, refuse. They say now is the time to act. And they're even more convinced after the 1936 election in which the Democrats and the New Deal sweep the nation and have absolute majorities in both houses of Congress and a commitment by the Roosevelt administration to support organized labor.
1: All right, so that's the basic story. Lewis, Hillman, Dubinsky, and their allies first form a committee within the AFL to push for industrial unionism, And a few years later, when it becomes clear that the differences between the two labor federations are irreconcilable, they form an independent organization called the Congress of Industrial Organizations. By the time that happens, the CIO has already seen many struggles and astounding victories, and I'll cover a few of those in the next episode. In this one, I want to talk about some of the CIO's key personalities, none more important than John Llewellyn Lewis.
4: Our story, John L. Lewis. For years, he was the most powerful figure in the American labor movement, yet few people knew him well.
1: Born in a coal town in Iowa to Welsh immigrant parents, Lewis was first elected president to a mine workers' local in 1909. In 1911, he was hired by Samuel Gompers to become an AFL organizer, and in 1919, he ascended to the presidency of the UMWA.
4: He was a pugnacious, unpredictable man, a brooding, solitary giant. John L. Lewis enjoyed the mystery that surrounded his life. What makes me tick, he once asked. Is it power I'm after, or am I St. Francis in disguise? Characteristically, Lewis never answered the question. His enemies called John L. Lewis a power-mad egomaniac, a tyrant who ruthlessly crushed all opposition, a menace to the public. But to the men who wore a union badge, Lewis was a champion, Labor's avenging angel. He was as independent, as strong-willed, as the coal miners he led. He was as rugged, as unyielding, as the coal mines from which he came.
1: That clip was from Mike Wallace's biography in the early 1960s, at which point Lewis's reputation as a labor giant had been well solidified. But in the 1920s, he was known as a petty tyrant, a union autocrat. Here is Communist Labor Organizer William Z. Foster describing Lewis in his 1927 Misleaders of Labor. The present head of the UMWA deserves to rank as one of the most powerful and reactionary leaders in the history of the miners' union. Lewis's regime is a curse to the miners. His first great treason to them was his failure to organize the miners during the years 1918 to 1921. Had he been so minded, he could have made the coal fields of America 100% unionized. Lewis refused to do this. Lewis has betrayed the miners in every district. Formerly, the miners' union was the most progressive organization in the American labor movement. Under Lewis, it has degenerated into one of the most reactionary. How was it, then, that this hardened union bureaucrat in the 1920s became the most dynamic voice for labor in the 1930s? I believe that to make sense of Lewis's remarkable transformation, we need to take into account four different factors, the first of which was simply that he saw an opportunity. Jeremy Brecker.
5: The United Mine Workers, led by John L. Lewis, immediately perceived the psychological and political impact of the National Recovery Administration. And they sent organizers into the field saying, the president wants you to join a union without noting that they meant it was the president of the United Mine Workers, not the president of the United States. And Roosevelt, being immensely popular in working-class communities, coal miners in particular poured into the union.
1: Lewis had lobbied intensely for the inclusion of Section 7A into the Recovery Act, which guaranteed workers the right to organize unions of their own choosing and to bargain collectively with their employers. After its passage, the miners immediately got to work organizing— and in September 1933, they won a contract covering all of the major soft-coal-producing districts, something they had sought since their founding in 1890.
2: In 1933, when Mr. Roosevelt took his seat, he said to President John L. Lewis, in Union we must be, come let us work together, as God to lead the plan. By this time, another year, we'll have the Union back again. Hooray! Hooray for the union we must stand. It's the only organization protect the living man. Boys, it makes our women happy. Our children clap the hand The CDP stick and the good folks are steaming and old frying pan.
1: Much like his allies Sidney Hillman and David Dubinsky in the garment workers' unions, Lewis took advantage of a friendly federal administration to rebuild his union, and he was baffled that other labor leaders weren't doing the same. Lewis also understood better than most that the mood in the country had shifted decisively in his favor. Nelson Lichtenstein and professor of history at the University of Rhode Island, Eric Loomis.
3: I think that both Lewis and Hillman recognize this is a a once-in-a-generation opportunity. I mean, we have here the Great Depression, which has sort of delegitimized business as a kind of, you know, backbone of prosperity and, and success. So the Great Depression that demonstrated the, the weaknesses and problems of, of American capitalism.
6: You know, the reality is I think it would have been very difficult for the CIO to do this at a different time in American history. But the reality is the Great Depression, the wholesale rejection of the Republican Party in 1932 and the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt really opened up new opportunities for a legislative change, right? I mean, I think that one of the really binding um, issues in American labor history is that, especially when compared to Western Europe, employers and the government have really worked together and when it was united to crush unions. And the number of unions that have succeeded in the face of the government just openly siding with corporations is very small. And, you know, so in, in a lot of the cases, including some of the, the core CIO victories, you know, those corporations expected, you know, these newly elected Democratic governors, for instance, or FDR himself, to send in the military to crush the strike. And these Democratic governors wouldn't because they had been elected with worker support. And, and then that really changes everything. And so some of it is the fact that this happens at a, at a moment in which workers and just Americans generally were so angry at the system that they elected really brand new people with brand new ideas.
1: Steve Frazier and Elizabeth Cohen also emphasized the importance of a friendly federal government.
5: I think of the CIO in some sense as a political phenomenon. That is to say, it emerges and consolidates itself within a wider political context. That is the context of the New Deal. It Closely calibrates its own activities with the growing New Deal wing of the Democratic Party. To one degree, they had the assistance of administration that increasingly relied on working class support for its political survival. Initially, that's not the case. Uh, Roosevelt is, and the New Deal is quite friendly towards the business community, the NIRA is a corporatist attempt to allow big business to discipline itself. And uh, Roosevelt is not an advocate of the National Labor Relations Act until very late in the game. But the business community deserts him. He has to move and the administration has to move increasingly to the left to rely on working class people for support. And I think that is um understood by the original organizers of the CIO, and it becomes increasingly helpful.
7: The federal government was crucial. Roosevelt did point a Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, who was very favorable towards labor, and he did speak in terms of the ordinary worker and the need to actually deliver a a decent living to that worker. So I do think that that support was crucial. And, you know, when I did my research on Chicago, I found many letters, for example, that ordinary people wrote to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, complaining when they didn't feel they were being treated properly. So they really felt that certainly the president was on their side.
1: So that's the first factor explaining Lewis's transformation an understanding of ripe political conditions, and a general hostility to the business class amongst the public. The second factor was a simple calculation of self-interest. Nicholas Rosenbaum, professor of law at the University of Colorado Boulder, Ahmed White.
8: The United Mine Workers of America had struggled with, I think, kind of chronic insecurity to do with, in many ways, with the nature of the mining industry. And uh, that insecurity was exacerbated by the significance of so-called captive mines or captive mining, the control of mines by basic and mass production industry, by companies like International Harvester or Ford or or U.S. Steel, which essentially controlled the mines, sometimes owned them outright, and incorporated them into their sort of vertically integrated production processes. And they were a thorn in the side of the UMWA and of Lewis Lewis, Himself and and Lewis, Lewis understood that to expand his orbit of control into those mass production and in basic industries would have the necessary effect of improving his situation in coal itself, and it's it's pretty clear that that was part of the impetus behind not only the formation of the CIO but the zeal with which the CIO undertook to organize industries like steel, and for that matter, automobiles and some of the mass production uh, industries that relied on on coal and steel.
1: With the captive mines still eluding the grasp of the UMWA, it was only natural that Lewis would take aim at the owners of those mines, and in particular, those in the steel industry. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that the CIO was started so that the miners could organize steel. Much of what transpired between late 1935 and early 1936, including the founding of the CIO and Lewis's seizure of the amalgamated association of iron, steel, and tin workers was designed for this purpose. The third factor was Lewis's perception of a fundamental threat to the American polity. And here I'll read from labor historian Robert Ziegler's great history of the CIO. Lewis had come to believe that the republic itself was in danger. The staggering technological revolution of the 1920s, he held, had fundamentally distorted the nation's economic life. A cabal of bankers and financiers, working out its objectives silently, invisibly, and without official recognition, had come to dominate the American economy. In the effort to shield themselves from public scrutiny and regulation, the kings of money and lords of finance were perverting the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, corrupting the political processes and regimenting the people they would stop at nothing short of a Tory revolution.
0: There are great influences abroad in the land, and the minds of men in all walks of life are disturbed. We are all disturbed by reason of the changes and the hazards in our economic situation, and as regards our own political security. There are forces at work in this country that would wipe out, if they could, the labor movement of America just as it was wiped out in Germany or just as it was wiped out in Italy. It is our belief that the best security against that menace and against that trend and against that tendency is a more comprehensive and more powerful labor movement. It is our conviction that the establishment of industrial unionism involves real recovery and reform, that shorter hours of work and re-employment of the unemployed are dependent upon its success, that it will secure a living wage for all and not profits for the privileged few, that it offers the only way to emancipation From industrial autocracy to economic and political freedom to those who work by hand or brain.
1: The final factor explaining Lewis's transformation was a great fear of and appreciation for the radical left. Eric Loomis.
6: One of the the key efforts here is actually, in, in some ways, I think, a fear of communism among the American labor movement. Even people who were key foundational figures in the CIO, such as John L. Lewis, were concerned that in, in the vacuum of not having unions for all of these these industries the communists were going to be able to come in and successfully organize them outside of the labor movement and into real left-wing radicalism. And certainly the communists had some uh, success in this before the CIO, including, I mean, unemployment marches in 1931 and 32, and with the gigantic uprising of workers in 1934 that moved or spurs the Roosevelt administration to, to pass the National Labor Relations Act in 1935.
1: Lewis also understood, however, that he could use the communists to his own advantage. Robert Cherney
6: when Lewis set
4: out to undertake organizing on a massive scale, he was willing to bring in known communists as organizers because they'd had experience working in some of these very industries. And he had an analogy between a hunter and a hunting dog. You know, he says, who who gets the prize? Is it the hunter or the hunting dog? He was the hunter, the communist organizers were the dogs.
1: So I've emphasized here the reasons for Lewis's radical departure from the AFL, as well as his checkered past as a union leader. But Melvin Dubofsky, who is author along with Warren Van Tyne of the definitive biography of Lewis, doesn't believe that he changed so much throughout his life. What he was interested in was power, and to wield power. In
2: the 1920s, he was caught up in an extremely unfavorable situation. Economically, for the coal industry, the 1920s were not as bad as today. But by the 1920s, one sector of the coal industry was dying. The anthracite or hard coal in northeastern Pennsylvania, in the soft coal sector, Railroads were switching from coal to diesel. In the electrical utility industry, there was beginning to be a transfer from coal generated power to gas generated power. And the labor force in the coal sector was decreasing. Then comes the depression. Then comes the election of Roosevelt and all hell begins to break out in the coal fields. Lewis sees it. Uh, he also has uh, economic advisors who are telling him what's happening and suggesting tactics and strategy to take advantage. And so in the 1930s, he sees what he didn't see in the 1920s the opportunity to act progressively He's no less dictatorial in the thirties than he was in the twenties. He's just dealing with a totally changed environment. I don't see Lewis changing fundamentally at any point.
1: In that aforementioned biography of Lewis, Dubofsky and Van Tyne write, In a real sense, the CIO at birth was Lewis. Lewis's fellow committee members, David Dubinsky and Max Zaritsky, lacked national influence and seemed as eager to maintain the respectability that the AFL conferred on them as to please Lewis. Only Sidney Hillman approached Lewis in stature and influence. Much admired by labor journalists, academics, and social reformers, Hillman, however, led a union, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, that operated in a peripheral industry and represented a narrow strata of the American working class, largely Jewish and Italian immigrants. Among the CIO's founders, then, only Lewis had in the past bargained as an equal with the men who ran the AFL, and only Lewis led a union situated at the heart of the American industrial economy. So Lewis is the key leader here. Sidney Hillman and David Dubinsky are often mentioned as other leaders involved in the CIO project. But Dubinsky only joins the CIO cautiously, and when it becomes clear that a rival labor federation is being set up, he returns to the AFL. By contrast, Sidney Hillman, the head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, or the Amalgamated for short, remains dedicated to the CIO throughout and is really the only other power center in the organization. I want to play a few clips from a speech of Hillman's from June 14th, 1935. This was after the Senate had passed the Wagner Act, but before Roosevelt had signed it. I think it represents well Hillman's capacious political vision.
9: Organized labor's demands meet the needs of the American people. They are demands which have grown out of experience with the ills of mass production economy. They are demands which will, we believe, if granted, bring security, abundance, and self-respect to the American people. In a mass production age, there must be sufficient purchasing power in the country to consume that which we produce. Lack of purchasing power spells economic stagnation, unemployment, and ultimately national bankruptcy. Our demand for the minimum wage is essential so that the American people may be guaranteed at least a minimum amount of purchasing power. Our demand for the right to organize and bargain collectively is so obviously fair and essential that it appears foolish to argue that point before any intelligent American audience. Manufacturers organize into powerful associations Why deny American labor that very right? The right of every free citizen. People of this country, if they choose, may follow an irresponsible leadership. A leadership that has never learned the need for self-control in the interest of the general good. And if they choose that cause, it is my conviction that disaster is ahead of us. On the other hand, they may, as I hope they will, choose the road of planning for security and plenty for all. A ray of hope came to the country since the Roosevelt administration has attempted to bring order out of chaos. The American people want an opportunity to earn for themselves a decent standard of living. They want security, and they are entitled to it. I believe that the program Labor has to offer will bring a solution which will be the answer to our needs. Surely, with our resources and ingenuity, we can abolish poverty in the midst of plants.
1: Here's Steve Fraser, author of the definitive biography of Sidney Hillman.
5: He's a Russian-Jewish immigrant. His experience in Russia was with the 1905 revolution. He was a member of the Jewish Bund, which was the socialist allied uh, Jewish organization of working class people under the czar. So he's a dedicated socialist before he ever gets to America. He comes to America via England and he, he shows up here and he becomes just a shop floor worker in Chicago at Hart Shaffer and Marks. And uh, he's there for the first, one of the first big strikes in the garment. Well, there have been garment industry strikes going back into the 19th century, but Hart Shafter and Marx is a key player in the garment industry and modern. It's not a sweatshop, it's a modern factory, big, a lot of employees. Hillman is there. He's a horribly inefficient worker, but he's part of the strike. And then he moves to New York and helps found the amalgamated. And then he becomes the darling of a kind of uh, liberal left, the Women's Trade Union League, Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, these liberals who see that industrial capitalism is undergoing these constant crises. The labor question keeps disturbing things. There's there's a kind of sometimes open, sometimes so de voce civil war going on, and you need to do something about it. Hillman seems like the, the kind of guy they're looking for. They befriend the amalgamated, they argue legal cases on its behalf. And Hillman becomes this kind of celebrated new unionist in the 20s before the CIO is formed. And he has, so he has this rather sophisticated political consciousness going into the Depression. He has ties into the left wing of the New Deal right from the get go. Tugwell, people like that, are people he knows. He's the real political liaison between the CIO once it gets started and the New Deal. He's the guy that Roosevelt's people look to.
1: This last fact would be a source of great tension between Lewis and Hillman. Lewis, the lifelong Republican, allied with FDR only tentatively, whereas Hillman's relationship with FDR and the New Dealers was much more solid. Dorothy Sue Cobble.
7: The garment unions, in particular, Represented a mix of workers in terms of skill, but also in terms of backgrounds uh, men and women, foreign born, native born. The garment unions also uh, were very progressive in outlook. And I think Hillman and other garment leaders fully understood. That if you were going to organize mass production and take on the world's largest corporations, that you were going to need the support of the political sector, of the political classes. And so they had a vision of political unionism and of the state weighing in on the side of workers, or at least not weighing in on the
1: side of capital. Though the tension between Lewis and Hillman was often portrayed as personal, it was political differences that ultimately separated the two.
5: Yeah, well, you know, Lewis is a funny guy. I mean, on the one hand, he's a, a militant. On the other hand, he's very anti-left in many respects. He's had voted Republican. He's an autocrat. Uh, the union is run autocratically. He runs a machine. Hillman is runs a machine, but it was born out of a lot of shop floor, rank-and-file activity, active socialists in the leadership of the union. So they're very different in that regard. And uh, I think Hillman is more committed to a kind of global social democracy than, than Lewis is.
1: If, as Melvin Dubofsky said here, John L. Lewis was about power, Sidney Hillman had a broader social vision, of which the CIO was just a part. And here I want to play an old clip from a CIO documentary. I very much apologize for the sound quality.
4: Sidney Hillman once declared that there is no welfare without the social welfare. From its very beginning, CIO recognized that economic progress, peace, democracy, and all its forms, these objectives of society have to be the objectives of organized labor. And from the beginning, CIO has said, and what is good for America is good for the CIO.
1: All right, there's one last group of people that I want to mention, and that is some of the key organizers of the CIO: John Brophy, Adolf Germer, Powers Hapgood, Philip Murray, Alan Haywood. And what united all of these people was that they came from the United Mine Workers of America, which is certainly a testament to Lewis's influence within the CIO. But it's also something of a curiosity. Many of the people I just mentioned had a strained relationship with Lewis. John Brophy, the first national director of the CIO, had actually been booted out of the UMWA in the 1920s for having challenged Lewis for the office of president. So the influence of the mine workers cannot be chalked up to cozy personal relations alone.
3: The fact is, all over the world, and, and for over more than a century, mine workers have been a kind of core constituency of the labor movement and often radical. I mean, d- the nature of mine work, it's dangerous. You're underground, so supervision is difficult. It's not like the, the foreman, it's a foreman, minutes over your shoulder. In fact, the tradition is that workers organize the work underground And of course, if they stop work, I mean, it's very hard to find strike breakers. So miners all over the world have been radical. And there've been militant and practically insurrectionary strikes in the United States since the 1870s. I mean, and and they're legendary Blair Mountain was a pitched battle between the mine workers and the U.S. Army in 1921. So um, there'd been this long tradition. Uh, On the other hand, winning higher wages also meant winning higher prices. And so the, the mine workers were thinking in in broad societal economic terms we have to reorganize the entire industry in order to make uh, unionism
9: oh i'm
0: going to lead the workers baby mine oh i'm going to lead the workers baby mine i'm going to lead the workers for i sure can't be a shirker oh i'm going to lead the workers baby mine See the minor children and wives, baby, mine. See the minor children and wives, baby, mine. See the minor children and wives, I'm compelled to save their
9: lives. So I'm going to organize, baby,
1: mine. As Walter Ruther and James Carey later reflected— While workers in our country's basic industries provided their own spirit and determination, it was for the most part the mine worker pork chopper who provided the organizational know-how. These were the men who climbed out of the coal pits to become the missionaries of industrial unionism. Thank you for tuning into this second episode of Organize the Unorganized. On next week's episode, we cover the three initial victories of the CIO in rubber, auto, and steel.